Let me know whenever you're ready. Okay. <clears throat> Jonathan Van Maren, welcome to the program. So good to be here. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Jonathan, um, you have to write about at LifeSite sometimes some of the most uncomfortable topics. You do that with great grace and uh, a lot of courage and uh, even a lot of fun. So thank you for that. And um, you've experienced a lot of what, you know, people go through as we report on uh, trying to make sane presentations and, and being booed and, and cajoled out of places. Uh, you do a lot of that yourself. Um, just for those of you who might, those of you who might not know, uh, Jonathan is a very frequent contributor to LifeSite News. He also runs the Van Maren podcast at LifeSite News. So if you don't know that, please go check it out. But why don't you start with that, Jonathan? Tell us a little bit about the presentations that you make at schools and some of the pushback that you've received. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's hard to know which topic to start with because, as you noted, for for LifeSite, I write about a lot of the key cultural issues, but especially the issues where the clashes clashes are the loudest and the hottest. Um, with regards to presentations, I do two kinds of presentations. I work full-time for a pro-life organization. My entry into writing was actually the pro-life movement, similar to how many of the people at LifeSite actually got involved originally in writing. And of course, in Canada, you can't say anything in opposition to abortion without attracting loud and angry protests, especially uh, at the universities. And I, I think one of the things people don't realize about the pro-life movement here in Canada is that the opposition to the pro-life movement is frequently violent. Uh, I've covered that for LifeSite. I think it was LifeSite who broke the story of, uh, of the man who roundhouse kicked uh, Mary mm -hmm. Claire Bissonette at LifeChain one year. What many people might not know is that fellow, a man named Jordan Hunt, also assaulted some of my uh, female colleagues a few months previous to that. And so when you stand up for life in the Canadian context, you have to assume that you're going to get some uh, pushback. And then the other presentations I give at schools, which are, are simultaneously uh, more rewarding and sometimes more depressing, are presentations on pornography. Because what we've seen in our culture, uh, especially since uh, COVID, when everybody was staying at home, is that porn addiction has gone from something that's an enormous problem uh, to something that's poisoning the hearts and minds of a majority of young people, even inside the churches. Uh, at, the, at the height of, of COVID, when everybody was being forced to stay at home, uh, we saw Pornhub getting more hits than Google and Facebook combined. They were getting trillion, trillions of hits every month. And so we've begun the long process of trying to reach out to young people to address the problem and to try and give them the assistance they need to break the addiction to what I think is probably the most poisonous toxin available online in a host of options. Indeed it is. In fact, that stat, that understanding, if you, if you think about what Jonathan just said there, more hits than Google and Facebook combined, that's just unreal. And do you, if you remember, um, not you, Jonathan, but but I think our viewers would remember very well the, about Our Lady Fatima told the three little children, more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason. And a lot of people wonder, oh, are the times we're living in today so bad, really? Or are they, you know, what are they? Oh, we're, David, we're having a massive delay. Oh, are you hearing the delay on your end? Jonathan? It, it delayed you for a minute and then suddenly caught up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's hearing that as well. 
Okay, wait, okay. All right, let me just start. I think he heard your reply just fine, so I'll start again. What Jonathan said there is so important because to realize that it's trillions of hits on this one pornography station channel, whatever you want to call it, and it so outweighs things that Google and Facebook together don't even have that kind of traffic, it does go to show where we are in the world today. Do you remember Our Lady of Fatima said to the three children in 1917 that more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason? It's stunning because people wonder, oh, are the times now worse than they were back then? No, there was really bad times back then. It's not, not, not even as bad now. Actually, if you think about what Jonathan just said, the numbers of people who are now addicted to porn. In fact, there's more people today regularly viewing porn than there were people alive back in mm -hmm. 1917. We're in perilous times. Say that. I, I get very frustrated when people say things aren't any worse because it's not just something people say to comfort themselves about all the evils going on and as a sort of an excuse not to do anything. But I think also, especially for anybody who's got kids or grandkids, it's, it's ignoring a threat that can destroy the souls of your children. And you're precisely right. While it's true uh, that pornography has always existed, the things that kids are getting hooked on now between the ages of five and 10 are not the sorts of things that were scratched onto the wall at Pompeii. And these things are, are things that, quite frankly, my dad couldn't have gotten his hands on, and my grandparents, in many cases, couldn't imagine. So the scale of the evil and the accessibility of the evil uh, that we're facing right now is unprecedented in recorded human history. And I actually believe that the omnipresence of pornography now in Western culture is contributing to a lot of the other issues that you discuss on the show, that uh, we discuss as columnists at LifeSite, and also that anybody, culturally speaking, is talking about, I don't think you can understand the LGBT movement. You can't understand the sexual revolution. You can't understand the degradation of entertainment without understanding the extent to which porn has conquered our culture. If pornography may not be the worst problem, but it makes every other problem worse. You know, I had a conversation the other day here uh, with my studio manager, David, and he was mentioning three items that really drive the destruction of our culture today. Fear that we saw so evidently with the whole COVID nonsense and then confusion and lust. And they all sort mm. of work together and perpetuate one another. It's just unreal. So that such that the human mind seems to be gone. We, we can't even understand ourselves anymore because of this delusion we're all under. And it's fueled also by lust. It's, it's so interesting that you mentioned those three, because to such a large extent, I think that Christians still haven't fully understood the impact of the digital era and the extent to which uh, the Internet, this thing that we're chatting on right now, but this thing that in a handful of years has is invaded every aspect of our lives, has transformed the way we communicate, the way that we think, and the extent to which big corporations are essentially making millions of dollars, billions of dollars, um, getting us addicted to fear and lust and rage and setting us at variance with each other. And we don't even fully understand how these things work yet. You remember, of course, an era where the Internet didn't dominate all of life. My generation kind of straddles um, the digital age and the previous age because I couldn't get a smartphone until well after I graduated high school. So my childhood would have, have more resembled yours than it would a kid today. Um, but the extent to which these, these tools have actually shaped us rather than we've shaped them 
and then to understand that the creators of the tools and the messages being sent through them are deeply corrupt, I think is important to understand the contours of the postmodern context and the post-Christian context. Indeed. One of the things you write about a lot that is really endemic of where we are at a culture as a culture right now is the whole transgender phenomenon that's just going crazy. Give us a snapshot, if you will, of where we are today on that score so people can just tell where we are in, as a culture. Well, let me give you a snapshot of where we are today and then we'll, we'll work back a little bit. Uh, to give you an idea of how far we've moved and how fast we've moved, we are now seeing headlines in every Western country that I think even 10 years ago we wouldn't have been able to fathom. And a good microcosmic example of this would be a tweet that was sent out by the Windsor Police Service uh, a couple of weeks back. And it was a picture of this sort of ugly looking, very obviously male criminal. Um, but the pronouns that were being used were she pronouns, her pronouns, because this woman had sexually assaulted a woman in a rape crisis center uh, where the, the, the vulnerable victim had gone to, to get help or to, to get safety. But instead, because a man identifying as a woman was allowed into the center, and in fact, the center was legally obligated to permit this man to come in, she was instead re-victimized. That is not a standalone incident because it's important here of, for listeners and watchers to understand that one of the things the LGBT movement does to incessantly gaslight us is to insist when we provide an example of the threat this movement poses to our society of accusing us to cherry pick in order to demonize. And sometimes I struggle when I'm, when I'm writing the columns for LifeSite, um, one of the editors will say, you need to cover this story and I'll have to read the details closely because sometimes it doesn't seem to differ a lot from a story I wrote about the previous month. And that's because these things are happening so often but the reason it's important to cover all of these stories is to establish to the audience that you're not insane. You are being gaslit. There is a pattern here. It's a pattern that's provable. And that once you recognize that pattern, you realize the extent to which we're being lied to by virtually every gatekeeper. And so what we, where we are now in 2023 is uh, an era in Canada, in parts of the United States and most of the Western world, in which a biological man identifying as a woman is not only legally considered to literally be a woman, but if he claims to be a woman, will be locked up with females, or more accurately, uh, females locked into prison will be locked behind bars with a man who is most often a violent criminal. We are seeing children claiming because of social contagion, because of propaganda they've been exposed to, because of public indoctrination in state schools, that they are either of the opposite gender or any number of genders in between. There are more than 80 of them now, all total. They rise probably as we speak. But horrifyingly, those children are being introduced to what is now called gender affirmation surgery. When I started writing about this for LifeSite, it was called sex change surgery. The terminology is changing to hem in the parameters of the debate to, to herd us towards specific conclusions. Um, those children are already hitting the ages of 16 and 17 and revealing the extent to which they've been physically and psychologically destroyed um, by these alleged treatments, by these cross-sex hormones, by these puberty blockers. And uh, for the Canadian listeners, what I think is, is so disturbing is that we're the only country not having an open discussion about what's going on. So in the United States, you know, blue states, red states, there's these fierce debates about 
whether transgender healthcare is healthcare or whether in fact it's systematic mutilation of gender dysphoric children. Uh, in the UK, they're debating whether or not these clinics should be permitted to engage in these alleged treatments. Uh, Finland, Sweden, the Scandinavian countries are actually passing legislation or changing medical protocols to stop doing these things to kids. <clears throat> Here in Canada, of course, our, our prime minister is full steam ahead on every aspect of this agenda. But what's even more disturbing is that aside from a handful of sort of dissident countercultural outlets, uh, the post-millennial, although I still think they're weak on pronouns, the rebel, blysite, there's almost nobody else that's willing to tackle the issue. Uh, National Post was considered our right of center uh, publication before they went libertarian. But even they will post a picture of, again, some, you know, great bruiser of a man and obediently use the she, her pronouns. And if you use the she, her pronouns, you've seeded the entire premises of the debate. Because if you admit that that guy is a woman, then what possible uh, um, reason do you have to keep that woman out of the change room or out of a, a battered woman's shelter or out of a female prison? If you cave on pronouns, you cave on premises and you end up where we are now. One of the biggest debates in this whole area has been over in and in the sports world. I know you've written a lot about that. What's the latest there? Well, what's, what's interesting about the sports world is that that's honestly where you're getting the most uh, pushback. And I'm not, I am aggressively disinterested in professional sports and always have been. And so I'm actually getting sort of a crash course on professional sports just because it's become this tempest in a teapot with a transgender issue. So you've got three things happening simultaneously that are very interesting. First, you have an enormous number of people who are opposing uh, referring to men who identify as women as women because they recognize that this ruins the sport. But yet they, they, they still wanna say this is a transgender woman, but they shouldn't be able to participate. And they're starting to recognize that that halfway position doesn't do any good. Because again, if you see the premises, you're finished. If, if that's a woman, then you can't actually bar that woman from playing these sports and you're getting a, a lot of backlash. But now finally, for the first time in a couple of years, you're actually having young women come forward and explain uh, that this is something that is discrimination. They have practiced for years and they're getting destroyed in these contexts because mediocre men are, are competing against women and destroying them due to physiological and physical differences that can't be controlled. And so that's been really encouraging to see. The strangest little culture war incident that, that I wrote about I wrote about for this site is the fact that the NHL is actually reconsidering their pride night and their pride pride jerseys, the rainbow jerseys, because first this one orthodox player comes forward and says, I'm not going to do that. When they ask him why, he says, I don't really need to explain. This is my faith. Not going to do that. Then you had players from Minnesota Wild uh, doing the same thing. Uh, and then a couple of other players, uh, a Christian goalie, then other team members are all stepping forward. And suddenly the NHL is saying, we're going to have to reconsider this. And you've got sports commentators melting down about how disgusting this is. And, and the things that you need to notice here are twofold. One, consider how totalitarian you have to be to think that somebody should get fired or fined for not physically wearing the flag of your preferred ideology on their physical person. Right. It's just wild to consider the level of entitlement that these people have. The second thing that's important to note about the NHL story, and as, as somebody who doesn't even like professional sports, this is very weird for me to say, one guy started this whole thing. 
Like one Russian Orthodox player who was like, not going to do it, not going to wear the jersey, not going to fight about it, just not going to play your game. That is what triggered this whole chain reaction that now may well end up seeing the NHL abandoning Pride Nights altogether. And so we're going to talk about a lot of depressing stuff here in the next bit. So one of the things listeners need to understand is that I believe the way forward is very small acts of courage consistently performed by ordinary people, right? Most people watching will often uh, will often think, well, what can I do, right? I'm not a podcaster or a columnist or a pro-life activist or any kind of activist. What can I do? The reason that the transgender movement has conquered our society is because ordinary people have played along because they just don't want the fight. Uh, they've gone along to get along. And so now when you end up being asked to supply your pronouns on your email, you do it. Uh, when you're asked to offer your pronouns on your name tag, people just do it. Um, bit by bit, it's all these little small things where people are like, okay, fine. Right? You might get a Christian player who's like, okay, it's Pride Night. Uh, I'll wear the stupid jersey. It doesn't really matter. Um, I'm not supporting it. I'm just you know, trying to stand up for tolerance. One guy says no, and suddenly you see this, train re- uh, this, this chain reaction. And I've, I've thought now, uh, ever since he did that, if ordinary guys like him, can do this, then everybody listening is going to encounter in the next couple of years a scenario in which they'll have a choice. They can just roll with it because it's not worth the fight, or they can take what might seem like a small stand with with large consequences. And I think we need to start considering what our hill to die on is, because the the thing about hills to die on is that the closer they get, the more they look like a hill to stay alive on, and Mm -hmm. surrender is habit-forming. And that's how the sexual revolutionaries win and are winning. But I still think that it's possible to stop the transgender juggernaut. Wow. And coming from Canada, that's a big thing to say. Canada is a very unique place. While you were mentioning in the States that they have some states actually fighting and passing legislation to stop the trans agenda, which is just incredible, which we just don't see any of here. But in Canada... Our conservatives are so weird. I want to play a a clip and get your reaction to it. These are conservative male politicians saying that they're supporting women. By doing what? Well, they're prancing around in high heels. Let's watch this. Now, Jonathan, you've seen this, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know they were conservative. uh, Yeah. So, Jonathan, if you can give us your take on that. So the difficulty, so here is, I think, the the tragedy of Canada, is that if you look at all of the available public data we have, the majority of people on the issues we're discussing are more closely aligned to you and I than to Justin Trudeau and his government. But there's a couple of key things that are missing. Uh, First and foremost, the Catholic community, the Orthodox Protestant community, more traditionally minded immigrant groups who haven't gone insane, don't even understand the concept of gender ideology yet. There is no coalition or real relationship between all of these groups together. We caught a glimpse of what it might look like during the the Canada summer jobs incident where Trudeau initially said that every group applying for funding uh, in the Canada summer jobs program would have to proactively endorse LGBT ideology and abortion. And suddenly I was at the same meetings as rabbis and imams and and temple leaders from the Sikh and Hindu community. And I think the liberals got a glimpse, too, of what diversity in Canada actually means, which is that the majority of religious groups dislike all this stuff. But I met with with a conservative politician earlier this month and I asked, 
you see the same things that I do. You're looking at the same polling data. I get that politicians are politicians, and you don't want to be hammering on the Overton window. That's my job as a pro-life activist. But why won't you stake out a position where the Canadian public already is? Uh, the majority of Canadians are, are not supportive of sex changes for children, for example. Interestingly enough, a CTV released polling a couple of years ago that indicated the vast majority of non-white Canadians are still against the redefinition of marriage. And so, you know, post-Christian white Canadians have moved on from that debate. Most of these Canadians still hold to the traditional views. And basically his answer to me was that this is cowardice. And the reality of Canada is that unlike the U.S., we simply don't have any political representation. There are some notable exceptions. Uh, you and I could probably name all of them if you gave us less than a minute. Um, we really appreciate those people. We pray for those people. We're grateful to have them. and We're grateful to have their voice. But they're a tiny minority. And this goes back to my, my, my uh, question of, of cowardice versus courage. Most, I would argue, almost everyone, except for a handful of conservative politicians of the country would tell you or I in private that they think all this gender ideology stuff is nonsense. But in public, they don't have the testicular fortitude themselves to actually say uh, men can't get pregnant or women don't have penises. They don't actually have the guts to say, to say those phrases because our conservative party essentially transitioned with the rest of the culture and they're now the liberals, they're the liberals driving the speed limit. And so what you end up having is Pierre Polyev, who's basically, he's pitching freedom, although doesn't apply it uh, to Christians because he voted for the conversion therapy ban that bans pastoral conversations and some parental conversations with kids struggling with identity issues. Um, what, he's, what he's really pitching is social liberalism with a better accountant than Trudeau has. Mm -hmm. um, so the, what makes Canada different really is a lack of a political option. There's nobody to take advantage of a consensus that I still think largely exists outside the big cities. Unbelievable. So developing this internal fortitude, it's not only for Canadians, it's largely here we have to do it, but it's everywhere. As you mentioned, uh -huh. the 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 powers that be, the elites, if you will, that don't have the majority yet, but they are coming for those who would dare to stand out, who would dare to oppose what really does seem like a new religion, uh, because it's pushed with religious fervor, and it is very much an anti-Christian, particularly anti-Christian. Not, you know, they're, they're really, it, it seems like they're totally picking on all the moral stands of Christianity in particular. And so this is coming, this is being forced like a new religion. They're, they're demanding acquiescence. They're demanding, it, it, you know, full obeisance. And um, mm -hmm. where do we develop? How do we develop that internal fortitude to stand up against it? That, that's such an interesting question because it really is the question. I don't believe that the West as such can be recovered. Um, the inheritance of the West is still there. Um, we can teach it in our schools, in our own colleges, and in our family circles. So it's not like that inheritance is gone. Um, but Christendom, as it was, it, it is finished. If you look at the philosopher Charles Taylor kind of described it, Christendom as, as nations of bulwarks of belief, which meant that all, all, of, all of the pressure was towards the Christian views, that it was act, you were actually sort of odd if you didn't believe in Christianity. You were the outlier. Now we live in, in nations with bulwarks of unbelief, strengthened by this new religion that you just described, which is 
the best way to put it would just be sort of the religion of the self, because fundamentally that's what transgender ideology is, is I, not only can I reject all sexual boundaries, all moral boundaries, but I can reconstruct myself sort of brick by brick. I can decide who I am internally and then conform physical reality to the, the, the person, the individual that I've conjured up in my mind. And I think that the Christians in the face of that have to do two things. But first, we have to create very robust subcultures. We need to ensure that our children are not educated by the state, uh, by any of those who seek to impose their ideology on the rest of us. I think 20 years ago, you could have had an argument about the public school and whether or not it was legitimate to consider sending your kids there. I'm about as radical as they get on that on that issue now. I think it's criminally negligent to send your kid to a public school. Mm. I know for a lot of people, it would take a lot of sacrifice to not send their kids to a public school, but I think you're sacrificing your kid, or at least taking a very, very high risk to get there. And if you want to know where, where my um, extremism on this issue comes from, I've gotten plenty of phone calls uh, from my conservative Catholic moms with nine kids who already have two kids identifying as transgender because they went to the public school. Um, but the, and these are tragedies that... Uh, secondarily, when we look at the social imaginary of our culture, we have to be very careful which storytellers are telling their stories to our kids. Because the mainstream culture, the storytellers are Hollywood, the entertainment industry, the big screen and the small screen, and the stories that are being told now by those storytellers are stories which have new heroes and new villains. So in, in the past, you know, our heroes were are his great historical figures, religious figures. Those are the sorts of people that are getting their statues torn down right now. The new heroes are the sexual revolutionaries, which is why men like statutory rapist Harvey Milk got a biopic, uh, you know, with Sean Penn starring as Harvey Milk. Uh, Alfred Kinsey, the pervert sex criminal, uh, got a biopic called Kinsey. Liam Neeson starred as him. Uh, Gloria Steinem, the uh, you know famous abortion activist, got two films about her in 2020 alone. And so these people are now lionized as heroes, whereas whenever anybody, a Christian or social conservative or pro-life shows up in one of these films, they're demonized and they're mocked. If we allow those storytellers to tell stories to our children, again, we're, their moral imagination will be shaped um, by the sexual revolutionaries. And so we have to create a robust subculture that involves cutting those people out. And then I believe uh, telling the truth into this dark culture is essential. So that will look different for different people. We just discussed small acts of courage. I uh, do things like run a podcast and write. One of, one of the things that I do, of course, is I believe the pro-life movement is one of the most important movements because if you go back to the very early church, um, saving children is something the very first Christians did. And there's one uh, great Christian philosopher who said, if, if in a hundred years, Christians are known as the people who don't kill their infants and their elderly, I think we'll have done pretty well. Yeah. Jonathan, you froze there for, for a second. If you're able to... Oh repeat that part of the story where you talked about the Catholic mother who did that, mm -hmm. and then we'll we'll break and go on from there because I think they caught the rest. It was just at that point that you okay. froze up for a sec. 
And, and for those who are wondering where my extremism on this issue comes from, I've gotten phone calls from, from Catholic moms with nine kids who already have two kids identifying as transgender because they sent them to public school. So I believe the public school poses an actual physical and spiritual threat to our children. And that's why I'm so opposed to sending our children there. Great. Is that good, David? Perfect. Okay. So one of the things that is truly remarkable, you, you talked about us being basically in a post-Christian world that the Christendom is sort of dead in a way. And I, I would agree. I mean, it lo certainly looks that way uh, when you look at the whole world scene. It doesn't seem like, uh, you know, Christendom is still standing. We know, though, the promise of our Lord that he will be with his church to the end of time. That still exists. Wherever there's one believer, you have, uh, you know, our Lord still present. But what do you think? I mean, I honestly believe we're we're in a time where we're out of political solutions, that divine intervention needs to come. I'd uh, love to hear your take on that, where we are in terms of the divine looking down. The famous quote from, I think it was Billy Graham's wife, if our Lord doesn't do something soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Where do you think we're at? I would tend to agree with you. Um, and I'll, I'll give one proviso in a moment, but I would tend to agree with you simply because it's very difficult to see the way back from some of the things that have happened. Uh, there are some things that I don't know if they can be undone. And so where you're from, there's a lot of big families still, right? Parents with, with, with lots of kids. And, and where I'm from, it's the same thing. I come from a family of big families. But what I've found doing pro-life activism and being on the streets is when you, when you hear somebody say, you know, I couldn't have three kids, I couldn't have four kids, I think they're serious. I, I think that, that there's been a break in the intergenerational experience and that the sexual revolution has been so totalizing that we no longer live in countries where people can imagine having even three or four kids, much less seven or eight or nine or four. And so sometimes I wonder that even if the political conditions were perfect, you had the right president, the right prime minister, you know, the policies that you and I would prefer, if we have a population that has actually not only lost the spiritual knowledge of, of what is best for them, but they've also lost the practical knowledge of how to live a different life. And I realized, actually, the more I, I engaged with the pro-life movement, that the subculture I myself grew up in was sort of a pocket where people still lived their lives as they had in generations past, while Christendom was sort of dying all around us. And that people no longer knew how to carry on those old ways of life. There's a, 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 a phrase Tolkien uses in, in the first book in his trilogy where he said some things that were forgotten that should not have been forgotten were lost. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think, yeah, I'm not sure how people would go back to that um, because the, the, of the break in the intergenerational experience. The same thing is true when I look at what gender ideology is doing. And, and it really breaks my heart because I'm not sure what to say to these 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 young people if we believe what we say then in the columns of the podcast and the advocacy that we do uh, that the trans movement is perpetrating irreversible damage on these children that the reality of that is what this means is that in the next 10 years you're going to have an army of mutilated institutions through all the most recent research we have, as recently as this month, will be incapable of, of bearing children or experiencing sexual intimacy, which will essentially mean that, that even pleasure, even fulfillment, as the culture understands it, will be denied to them. 
much less the idea of, of being able to become one with somebody else and then watch that love, you know, grow onto another human being that's half you and half her. And so there's no there's no way back for these kids either. There's so many things that are being done that cannot be undone. And I, I really would tend to agree with you that short of a divine intervention, this train is going too fast and the cliff is too close to turn it around. The only sort of spasm of hope I've had in all of this, though, is the overturn of Roe v. Wade last year. And the reason for that is because for the first time since the sexual revolution has begun, something that was done was undone. And watching the panic of, of the sexual revolutionaries over Roe v. Wade, reading about it in The Guardian and The New York Times, hearing abortion activists in the global South and Africa saying things like, this is going to set us back years. I realized when Roe died, the myth of inevitability died. The idea that, that all, all of history is marching in a single direction, uh, that abortion is legal, that abortion regimes are inevitable, which you know many people felt after Ireland fell in, in 2018. And then suddenly, you know, the world's greatest superpower for the moment, um, which had declared abortion to be a constitutional right, suddenly declared that abortion was not a constitutional right and did so in those terms. And so that's where the myth of inevitability died. Uh, and looking back at the 50 years of committed and dedicated work of ordinary men and women praying outside abortion clinics and going to the freezing March for Life in January, culminating in this did make me realize that uh, to lose hope is also a historical because there's no good reason that Roe should have happened. And, and your memory will go back further than me, but you know, they said the pro-life movement was dead when the Human Life Amendment failed in the 80s. And then they said it was dead in 1992 when Planned Parenthood v. Casey came down. And then they said it was dead when Obama got reelected and it looked like the court was his. And then they said it was dead when Scalia died and, and there was a, an, another spot for Obama to a point, and, and, and that spot was held open for a whole year. And then, and then this happened, right? So, so I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I felt like the significance of Roe v. Wade's overturn for me wasn't just that 13 states now largely restrict abortion. According to Dr. Michael New, who regularly emails both of us his latest statistics, 34,000 babies are alive who would have been dead if that hadn't happened. But also just the sort of, this sort of uh, this jolt in, in, in this march where it's like, no, actually, what's been done can be undone. And that's sort of encouraging to consider. Do you have just a second? Just the 10 seconds of we're going to have an army uh, coming into the future of um, mutilated um, yeah, yeah. kids. Yeah, okay. Uh, you cut out slightly again oh, really? where you were talking about uh, an, uh, an army of mutilated. Can you give us that snippet again? We'll put it in put it in there. Okay. I'm sorry about that. I'm, the reason I'm I, I don't know it's your end. It might be ours, but so we'll see what, what it is. So we've okay. had issues here. This is our fourth internet, internet iteration that we've tried to switch from one to one to the other, but it, we're in Barry's Barry, so it's, it's hard here. Okay. Uh, one of the things that can't be undone, and if we believe what we write and podcast about and advocate for, uh, is that there's an army of mutilated children who have been physically and physiologically destroyed um, by butchers calling themselves surgeons and by healthcare that in reality was poison. And what we're going to have is a generation of young girls with chest scars and, and mutilated genitals, so young boys who have been castrated. How those 
children will react to discovering how much of life is now denied to them and was denied to them before they could even you know drink smoke vote or drive that i think is one of the big questions of the next 10 years beautiful that's great okay jonathan uh first of all i want to tell everybody jonathan van maren as we said earlier in the program is one of our podcasters the van maren show on lifesite news also, he's a frequent contributor to LifeSiteNews.com. Go to LifeSiteNews.com and search up Jonathan Van Maren. Jonathan, any final thoughts for us with regard to this mess where we are in our culture today, the road out? And since you talk to so many young people, specifically a message for them. Oh, that's very interesting. Because I, I would go back to what I said earlier. I, I think that where people despair is when they look at the very big picture. Um, but not only are none of us in control of the big picture, um, but we're also not called to, to do, the, do the big picture. We're not called to save the world. We're called to deal with what's directly in front of us. And so one of the things that I think that I, I would say to encourage all parents for starters is that it is much more difficult today to give your children the sort of upbringing that I got to have almost by default by amazing parents um, that, that your generation would have had simply because the poison wasn't available on screens everywhere you looked. It is still possible to give your children that upbringing if you orient your life towards doing so. If you make conscious decisions about cutting out the storytellers that want to poison your mind and the minds of your children by refusing to give them technological devices that are pipelines for the porn industry, by instead giving them the Western inheritance that's been completely abandoned um, by our mainstream culture now, the books and the music that was written by people whose statues are currently being uh, torn down. I pinch myself sometimes and think, how can these revolutionaries be so insane that they've left it to me to defend Dostoevsky and Dickens and Bach and Beethoven while they defend rock and roll and genital mutilation? It seems surreal that they would have given this ground to us and occupied the ground where they stand instead. And so Anthony Esselin, who I know that we, we both read much of, uh, once called literature the, the great unused artillery of the culture wars. Mm -hmm. And so it is still possible to raise your children the way that you were raised, or if you weren't raised that way, to give them a new opportunity to give Beautiful. And what do you make of young people who are so steeped in this themselves? Wait one second. What's we we don't give them a new opportunity to not be froze at them. Okay, uh, I I don't know what's just, going on, but I, you froze you froze again there uh, at to give them a new opportunity. Um. So I stopped right there. I saw you freeze, and I stopped talking because I knew this would happen. Ah. Uh, okay. And that's why I didn't go right into the young people because I knew there was a brief freeze there. For a okay. Could you continue from there then? When I think it was that where you said to give the young people what was the opportunity. Last, what was the last sentence? What was the last line he had? Uh, we were talking about literature and it was to give them a, 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 a new opportunity. Yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So just because the secular culture, the post-Christian culture, the anti-Christian culture has rejected this way of life, it doesn't mean we need to do so. That way of life is still available to us if we are incredibly intentional and work very hard, and all of that is worth it. And to young people, 
I have the same message, but it's more difficult because their minds are shaped by what they see around them. And those who have been struggling with pornography, uh, those who see all of the peer pressure orienting them towards an anti-Christian worldview, it is much more difficult for them. And I always want to start off by saying I can never browbeat young people because they didn't choose to grow up in this world. And the poisonous world they're being forced to grow up in was created by adults. And those adults fully intended to destroy their minds simply for profit. People often ask me, do the porn companies want to corrupt the youth? I don't think they care, as long as that corruption results in enormous amounts of money going into their coffers. But the good news is the same good news that has always been there, is that there is so much fulfillment in a Christian life. And this is something that every generation has to rediscover for itself. Um, but these rules are not put in place to restrict us. They are put in place that we can fully understand and fully enjoy and fully embrace the things that are best for us because our creator knew best what a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is. And he has given us the recipe for a happy life. And what we are called to do is to follow that, but to recognize that what is being sold by the world will inevitably destroy your chances at happiness. And what is laid out in the Christian faith will give you the recipe to happiness. And I'm much less far down that road than you are because you've got a much bigger family than you. And so if you, John Henry, could almost just tell the young people out there just for a minute, what is it like being a dad to a huge family and getting to be married for 25 years? Because I hope to achieve a long marriage. But I look at my grandparents, I look at people who have been married for so long and think it takes decades to have a love that looks like that, to have a family that looks like that. But I think that's so attractive to young people who don't know how to get it. Yeah, it, it's funny, you know, the one thing that I'd say, it's a generosity on God's part. And I did so many things that made me so unworthy of anything like what I've been gifted with. I have eight children eight beautiful children whom I love and can say, as far as I know, love me. And, and my wife, a beautiful wife who's been open to life, who's been open to family, who's been open to faith. I don't deserve any of those things. That's the generosity of our good Lord, who even after we've offended him, who when we know full well that our own sins have caused his crucifixion, he bore that for us. And he turns around from that as soon as we turn to him, even a little bit, and blesses us. No matter what mess you've got yourself into, it's amazing to see how God is willing to bless you. The blessing of family is something I know I don't deserve. It's a beautiful thing because it brings you out of yourself. It brings you to serve in a way that is, it's very natural too, because the motivation to live your life for Christ, to live a life of generosity and of self-giving is tough. But when the motivation is there in the little mouths to feed, the little bums to change, it moves you to do what you know is right but sometimes don't have what it takes within you to go forward. Family is a great motivational factor that way.
and you get to learn in your life, as you live your life, God's way is the best way. It's the mm -hmm. only real beauty that exists. It's the one that Christ showed us in his example with, you know, he said, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's an example of his own life union with the church. It's the example that we live out in our family lives. We can all strive for that. Unworthy of it, though I be, and anyone else may be, he still puts that out for us. That, to me, is what family's like. Yeah. Jonathan Van Maren, what a, what a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, thank you, from all the many LifeSite readers who have, for years, appreciated your writing, your insights, your podcasts. Um, they're a great blessing to us. God bless you. think we're frozen to you. Is that right? Just for a second. Oh, there you go. Okay. So well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, good. Go ahead, Jonathan. I can hear you now. Yeah, just thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope to see you again very, very soon. Very good. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time.